The scripture reading this morning is from Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they, they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, where you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Morning. Happy Easter. Uh, Right now, Eric alluded to this just a second ago, close to a third of the world is celebrating switch mics here. Kind of, um, it's kind of angelic, but kind of, <laughs> kind of not. <laughs> Try that again. Right now, close to a third of the world is celebrating that on a Sunday morning, a couple of thousand years ago, a Jewish rabbi who was executed for heresy and for political insurrection on Friday afternoon and then was buried on Friday night, was was raised to the dead on Sunday morning. Everybody knows that's what happened on Easter. They know that they know what happened, that it happened, but a lot of people don't know why it happened. What was the purpose? What was the the point of Easter? Why did Jesus come back from the dead? Uh, Dale Bruner, who is this prominent New Testament scholar in the United States, tells a story about a time he was teaching a lesson on the resurrection to a group of children, and he was trying to engage them. So he says, does anybody know what was the first thing that Jesus said to the disciples after he was raised from the dead? Little girl raises her hand. I know, I know. Ta-da! Was that, was that it? Was it... Was it supposed to be just a, a cool magic trick? You know, is that the point? Ta-da! I did it. Came back from the dead. Was, it, was that it or was there something more? Was there a different purpose? And if there was a different purpose, what is it? What is this, this higher purpose? The scripture actually gives an answer to that question that is totally unambiguous, clear. It's not difficult to understand at all. It's very straightforward. The purpose of Easter, the reason Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, was so that you and I can be raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected so that we can be resurrected. If you look at the first verse on your insert here, these will be up on the screen as well. This is uh, number one. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. I I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. You say, well, in what sense? What's, what sort of resurrection 
you're talking about? Well, two different senses. First sense is just the physical resurrection. When you die physically, raise back to life again physically like Jesus was. We'll talk about that a little bit later on this morning. But it's, it's not the main thing. It's actually kind of boring in comparison to the main thing, which is what I want to focus on this morning. There's a, there's a different sort of resurrection that's going on, too. When you look at the New Testament, you see these earliest Christians. It's, it's interesting. They talk about, we will die, and we will be raised again with Christ. They do say that. But what they say a lot more often is something else. They talk in the past tense. We have died, and we have been raised again. If you look at number two there on your insert, a couple of examples here from Galatians. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You have been raised with Christ. So what is this? What is this past tense? You were raised. You have been raised. This resurrection that's already happened. What are they talking about? They're talking about not their physical bodies, but their spiritual selves, their souls, the more important part of them. And that brings us to the, the primary purpose of Easter. This is what Easter is about. Easter, the purpose of Easter is that human beings, men and women, can be raised again to new life, not just physically when they die, but spiritually right now. That is the purpose of Easter. Look at these verses next to number three on your insert. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. For therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Jesus was resurrected so that we could be resurrected spiritually. That's the purpose of Easter. That's the heart of Christianity. And I, I think I should just say, I, that's not... That's not like my take on the purpose of Easter. That's not an interpretation of the purpose of Easter. That's not what Easter means to me. This is what Easter means. It's what it's always meant for every type of Christian, every size, every variety, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, any type of Christian, this is what Easter means. They would all agree this is what Easter is about. This is from uh, the Pope's Easter message of last year. He says, God created men and women, for resurrection. This truth is what gives authentic meaning to our lives and to history and to culture. Without resurrection, the entire universe finishes shut within a tomb devoid of any future or any hope. That's the purpose of Easter. Say, all right, short message. Wrap that up quickly. I like this guy. That's good. Get right to the point. Unfortunately, that's, that's just the setup what I'd like to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about together is, is this very important question. Let's say that this is, this is all true. Let's say it is possible for people, for ordinary people, to have a spiritual resurrection, a new life, because of the resurrection that, that took place on Easter. If that is possible, how is that new life going to be different from the life I've already got? If that is possible, what's going to be different about it? Because, to be honest with you, this whole dying and raising again thing seems like somewhat of an ordeal. It kind of seems like a lot of work to go through. And I, I think it's fair to ask, what is my life going to be like on the other side? What are, how specifically, precisely, are things going to be different? What's, what's going to be new about the new life? If I'm going to go to all the trouble, I'd like to know that in advance. I think that's a very fair question. Jesus himself says, everybody should count the cost before they come 
and following it. So that's what I want to talk about this morning is, is what's new about the new life. To put it more personally, let's, let's say you died and came back to life as a true Christian. What would your life look like? How would it be different? I'm going to talk about six things in, in three pairs, though, three paradoxical pairs. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll talk about them one at a time. This new life is going to be, first of all, clearer, but also stranger than before. Clearer and stranger. Second, it's going to be lighter, but also heavier. Lighter and heavier. And third, it's going to be safer, but also scarier. Clearer and stranger. Lighter and heavier. Safer and scarier. So we'll talk about each of those pairs one at a time. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. I ask that you would take my words and use them to communicate your truth. I ask that as we look at scripture, you would speak into our hearts. I ask that you would open the hearts of everyone here and make them ready and open to, to hear whatever it is that you want to say to them. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen King. Amen. First, clearer and stranger. Clearer and stranger. We'll start with clearer. Most people do not have a lot of perspective on their own lives. Socrates said the life that's unexamined is not worth living. And by that standard, a lot of people live lives that aren't worth living. They don't see. They can't see beneath the surface. They can see how to get ahead. They can see how to work the system. But they can't see what's going on within them. They can't understand their own thoughts, their own emotions, their own desires. Same thing with people around them. The, the whole city has been celebrating the last couple of weeks that Mad Men finally came back on the air after an 18-month hiatus. How could they do that to us? I mean, it's just terrible. But Don Draper is this, this perfect embodiment of this phenomenon of, of seeing really clearly above the surface, but not being able to see really what's going on beneath the surface. You know, he's, he's such a smooth operator. He can see brilliantly how to get ahead in his business, how to climb the ladder, how to pick out a suit or find a good barber. He's, he gets these surface issues, but then when it comes to understanding you know, his feelings or how his past connects to his present or having a compelling vision of where he wants his life to ultimately end up. It's just lacking. There's confusion. There's lack of clarity. There's a fog. And Draper is a protagonist we can connect to because people know what that's like. People know what it's like to wonder, why did that happen to me? Why did that happen to me in the past? What did that mean? What was it about? Why do I feel the things I'm feeling? Why do I feel these things I don't want to feel? Why don't I feel these things that I do want to feel? Why is this happening in my marriage? Why did, why did that happen? How did we get here? How did it become like this? Lack of clarity, confusion, inability to see. What's the cause of that? Uh, you could ask 100 different experts. You could 100 different opinions. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says. The Bible gives a very clear answer. If you look on the, the next verse here, next to number four. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. The Bible says that clarity and confusion in your life will always be directly proportional to your distance from God. Clarity and confusion will always be directly proportional to your distance from God. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. When you read that, the tough question for you is, does this describe me? Does it describe me when he says, yeah, they knew God, I know know God, but I don't thank him, I don't glorify him as God. And if so, well, you've got the answer to your clarity problem. The Bible says that's the issue. That's the issue with your clarity problem, this distance from God. Your your heart is going to become darkened. Your thinking is going to become foolish and confused. So if that's the, the diagnosis, what's the antidote? Look at the next verse, still next to number four. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I've heard this more times than I can count. This is the first thing that people typically say when they come to Christ is say, it's, it's so much clearer. I can see with so much more clarity. I finally understand these things that I never understood before. It's like the fog has been lifted. Clarity gets clearer. And it's not just you see God for the first time, but you also, through God's light, see yourself and see others for the first time as well. This is C.S. Lewis's great line about, I believe in Christ just as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Clarity is the first thing that happens with this new resurrected life. It gets clearer, but it also gets stranger. It gets clearer, but it also gets stranger. A normal life makes sense on the surface and doesn't really make sense beneath the surface. A resurrected Christian life makes sense on a deeper level, but doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface, especially to an outside observer. I think the main reason a lot of people don't want to get serious about Christianity is because they're afraid that they'll get weird if they do. And I think that that's a pretty legitimate concern, honestly. I mean, you you think about, you know, this conversation with a friend. It's, oh, so you're going to church again. Interesting. You really like those people that much. You really get that much out of it. So let me get this straight. You you are going to continue to give your money away, even though things are tight. I mean, what about your kid's college fund? What about your retirement? I'm Honestly, I'm getting a little bit con- concerned for you. Or your friend asks, you know, what, what do you keep, what motivates you to keep doing these things you're doing? You say, well, you know, I, I mean, I think about the, the eternal rewards. Oh, okay, yeah, of course. Why, why didn't I think of that? Or do, do you ever feel really guilty about these things that you've done in the past, these mistakes you've made? Does this ever just nag at you and you say, no, not really. I mean, I still feel sad about those things that I did, but I believe that my guilt, I feel that my guilt was absorbed by Christ on the cross. And after a while, the the friend is going to say, you realize that you have lost touch with reality. You're not saying anything that makes any sense. This is strange. You're strange. And that's to be expected. That kind of response is to be uh, expected. If you look at at number five, the, the first verse next to number five, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is he talking about when he says, for the message of the cross? What is the message of the cross? It's everything we've been talking about so far. This message that a normal person can die and be raised again spiritually, new life, through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the message of the cross. And he acknowledges that message is foolishness. It's foolishness. It doesn't sound flashy. It's not very sophisticated. It's going to invite ridicule. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, there's a symmetry to it. We were just looking a, a second ago at how if you try to be wise, you end up being foolish. So it would make sense that the path back to wisdom, you're going to have to accept being looked at as a fool. He says at the end there, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, you're not going to be boasting in yourself anymore. You don't, there's nothing in the way of life itself that gives you anything to boast about. So if you're, if you're living your own way, if you're living for yourself, you do have something to boast in. If you do well, if you're successful, you, you choose your own path and you do well at it, you have a right to boast. And it makes sense to others. Nobody's going to say, you know, look at that guy. He's making as much money as fast as he can. That doesn't make any sense. That's really weird. No, nobody's going to say it because it does make sense. It's normal. It's a normal thing to do. But when you choose this new life with new values and new standards, all of a sudden it doesn't make sense to outsiders, and sometimes it doesn't even make sense to you. It gets clearer, but it gets stranger at the same time. And it'll invite quizzical looks. Sometimes it'll even invite mockery. This, this other verse makes number five from Acts chapter 2. It's the first big Christian gathering. Some people were intrigued, but others weren't so much. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. They're drunk. They're crazy. They're, you know, they, don't, they don't know what they're talking about. It's clear and stranger at the same time. It's the first pair. Went a little bit long on that one. We'll go quicker on the next two. Clear and stranger at the, at the same time. The second paradoxical pair, it gets lighter and it gets heavier. This new resurrected life is both lighter and heavier. We'll talk about lighter first. In what sense does it get lighter? It gets lighter in the sense that when you die spiritually and are raised again spiritually, there are certain things that you get, certain burdens that you get to leave behind you in the grave, that you don't take with you into this new resurrected spiritual life. Like what? I'll just mention two. We could talk about a bunch of them, but I'll just mention two this morning. The first burden that you leave behind you is this guilt for the mistakes you made in the past. We mentioned this, alluded to it just a second ago. You leave behind you this guilt for the mistakes you made in the past. It's a good movie last year that came out uh, called Get Low with Robert Duvall and uh, Bill Murray. And Robert Duvall's character is this guy who's responsible for the death of a young woman in a fire when he's really young. So he spends the rest of his life as a hermit in this cabin out in the woods trying to pay for what he's done. Kind of the weight of it just, just crushes him. It's an extreme example, but I think we all know what that's like. I think everybody has this experience of a past mistake that just continues to haunt you. You just carry this dull weight around with you. One of the things that happens for a resurrected, spiritually resurrected person is you leave that weight behind. If you look on the reverse of your insert, number six, God made you alive with Christ. That's what we've been talking about, the spiritual resurrection. God made you alive with Christ, and part of that is he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So I said you get to leave these burdens behind you in the grave. Somewhat more poignant image is it's nailed to the cross. It's nailed to the cross. You don't take it with you. You leave behind this guilt for past mistakes. That's the first type of burden you can let go of and leave behind as a spiritually resurrected person. A second type of burden you can let go of is this, uh, this pressure for needing to, to prove yourself and provide for yourself in the, in the present. People in this town are killing themselves, working so hard 
Because they, they truly believe that if they let up for just a second, somebody else is going to leap ahead of them, and they're going to have nothing. That is a very bleak way to live. And Jesus offers an alternative. You see here, the next verse down on number six. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's still a yoke. He still gives you something to do. You don't just sit around. There's still a job. You still participate with him in this work. But it's work that doesn't break your back. It's work that gives you meaning and status and legitimacy without killing you. And then it's your prerogative to put all your personal needs on him. You say, well, I'm doing your work now. I'm following you now. So it's your job to take care of me. A lot of people walked in here this morning with a cartload of worries, just concerns, things you're worried about in your own life. What would it be like to just lay those down? And that's, not a, that's not just some infantile fantasy. That is the, the, your prerogative as a resurrected person. You look at the, the next verse on number six. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7. So your life gets lighter. A resurrected person's life gets lighter. And you lay down this burden of guilt for past mistakes, and you lay down this burden of needing to prove yourself and provide for yourself in the present. It gets lighter, but it also gets heavier. And just as it gets lighter in a couple of different senses, it gets heavier in a couple of different senses as well. The first sense in which it gets heavier is that all of a sudden everything you do matters a lot more than it did before. One of the, the most common misconceptions about Christianity is, well, wait a minute, so, so if all my sins are forgiven, then what I do doesn't really matter anymore. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not true at all. That's not how it works at all. Rather, all your past mistakes are forgiven, but all your choices moving forward matter more than they ever have before because you're going to be rewarded for everything you do. And every bad choice you make is this missed opportunity for making an eternal impact. If you look at this next verse next to number 7, from 2 Corinthians 5. So we make it our goal to please him, for whom we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us. It's talking about rewards there. It matters. What you do matters. This is, this is Russell Crowe's um, famous, somewhat cheesy line from Gladiator. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. And that's true. That's true. Your sins are paid for, but what you do matters eternally. So it's heavier. It's heavier. Everything you do has a greater weight to it than before. That's one sense in which your life gets heavier. A second sense, a closely related sense in which your life gets heavier, is your circle of concern widens a great deal. So before, you just had to be concerned with yourself, and now you don't have to worry about yourself anymore, but you do have to worry about other people. You do have to worry about a lot of other people that you weren't worried about before. Nicholas Kristof, the the, uh, Times columnist, writes a lot about international issues. He's not a Christian, but he's been very good about pointing out that, hey, you know, liberals really love to make fun of conservative evangelical Christians, but who is it that's often leading the charge on AIDS, on genocide, on poverty? Why is that? Because as a resurrected person, it's your problem. It's your problem to deal with those things. On Easter Sunday, God launched an all-out war against evil, and against darkness, 
And as someone who's joined in that resurrection, you're a foot soldier in that. So it's your problem now. It's your responsibility now. Now, maybe even heavier than that. I mean, that sounds pretty heavy, but maybe even heavier than that. It's not just the problems around the world, but the problems, your friends, your neighbors, the people closest to you. If you look at the next verse, still next to number seven from Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. Your life got heavier. You got other people's burdens to carry. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's that? I just took a few selections here from all throughout the New Testament. Love one another. Serve one another. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Pray for one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. It's a lot. And it's your responsibility now as a new person in Christ. So your life gets lighter but it also gets heavier at the same time. Lighter in the sense that you can let go of your past guilt and this burden of needing to provide for yourself, but heavier in the sense that you can now have to deal with other people's problems across the world, across the room, both. First, clearer and stranger. Second, lighter and heavier. And third, and finally, safer and scarier. It gets safer and scarier both. This resurrected life is safer and scarier than a normal life. First, safer. In what sense is it safer? This one's very straightforward. It's safer in the sense that your future is secure. You know what's going to happen to you when you die. And, you know, we, we talked at the beginning that the spiritual resurrection is the more important piece, but I do want to mention this physical resurrection as well. Number eight there on your insert. Here you see an example of the, the future tense, talking about the physical resurrection. By his power... God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. He will raise us also on that day. This physical resurrection is part of the deal, too. It's an unhappy child. Peace of Easter be upon you. Um, so this, it, it's interesting to me that this, the, the, this physical Resurrection is the part that people have a hard time believing. It surprises me that this is, this is the issue. It's like, well, yes, I, I believe that God can, can raise um, a, a person's spirit back to life. I believe he can take an angry, bitter person and make them a, a happy, loving person. I believe that he can resurrect a marriage. I believe that he can resurrect a family. I believe he can resurrect a dream. I believe he can resurrect... You know, all these, these things that are dead, but then when it comes to a body, well, no, no, I don't think he can resurrect a body. That just seems like too much. How could he do that? And, well, if he can do the greater thing, he can do the lesser thing. Why is it, well, if he can do all these, why can he not do the other? The same thing with respect to, to Jesus himself, by the way. I, I'm surprised that people feel like, well, yeah, sure, I can believe that Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived. I can believe that he taught like nobody ever taught that he loved like nobody ever loved. I can believe that he did all these miracles. I can believe that he died a universally significant death on the cross for all of mankind. But, I mean, coming back from the dead, that's just too much. I mean, that, that just pushes it. If he could do all the other, why could he not do that? C.H. Dodd, the great New Testament scholar at Oxford and Cambridge, first part of the 20th century, said it's Jesus' life that makes it so easy to believe in his resurrection. It's true. It's kind of inevitable. It's par for the course if you've seen everything else that's happened up to that point. That's how Jesus treats it. If you look on your, your program, this is uh, 
still next to number eight, the second verse next to number eight. So the women hurried away from the tomb and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And I, I love how understated Jesus is here. He's, you know, he's gone through this gruesome crucifixion. His disciples have been waiting, not knowing what's going to happen. They've been through this whole ordeal. They, they go and find an empty tomb. They have no idea what's going on. And they finally see Jesus, and he says, greetings, greetings. And this, the, the word that's translated there is just this, this everyday word for hello. Hey, how's it going? Nice, to see, nice weather, isn't it? <laughs> greetings. So understated. In other words, what did you expect? In other words, didn't I tell you that this was going to happen? In other words, if I could raise other people from the dead, if I could walk on water, if I could turn water into wine, if I could heal the, the lame and make the blind see, didn't you know that this was going to happen? Wasn't this inevitable? It's the only way the story can end. When we first came to this church, Brittany was the, my wife Brittany was the, children's minister, and she had this great experience her first Easter here of telling the, the Easter story to a group of kids, and several of the kids in the group had never heard the story before, and there was one little boy in particular, about seven years old, who was listening really intently, kind of on the edge of his seat, and so she's talking about Jesus's life, and um, then talks about his trial, and gets to, gets to his execution, and him being put on the cross, and the little boy just stands up outraged, almost crying, and is yelling, no, 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 they can't do that, they can't do that, they can't do that. So she, she quiets him down, and she, she sits him down, and she keeps telling the story, and she talks about, you know, his death and his burial, and then she, and then she talks about how Sunday morning there's an earthquake, and the women go to the tomb, and it's empty, and they, they see Jesus on the road, he's, he's risen. And the little boy stands up and says, yes, 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 I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> and, and the truth is, he did. He did know it. He knew it. I mean, it had to happen. He knew it. It's inevitable. It's the only logical conclusion to the story. If you've been paying any attention at all up to that point, you know that's the only way it can end. If all this, then of course... This And the same thing that's true for Christ is true for you. If, if God can give you a new heart, if God can put new love into your life, if God can resurrect your spirit, then certainly he can resurrect your body. Certainly your future is secure. This isn't some invented pie-in-the-sky thought to make people feel nice and not fear death as much. That's not what it is. It's this ne- logically necessary corollary to everything that's gone before gets safer. A life in Christ, a resurrected life, is safer than a life before. It gets safer, but then also, this is the last thing, safer, but also scarier. Safer, but scarier. One of the uh, most striking things about the gospel accounts of the resurrection is that when the... One of the most striking things about the gospel account of the resurrection is that, that when, the, when the disciples see Jesus, they don't, they don't collapse in relief it's, and, and say, finally, it's all over. Rather, they become very afraid. They, be, they, they become more afraid after the resurrection 
than before the resurrection. I've got just a couple of selections from three different Gospels there. This is the last verse on your insert, number nine. Afraid yet filled with joy, trembling and bewildered, with the doors locked for fear. Those are all after the resurrection. All those descriptions of the disciples take place after the resurrection. They're terrified. They're terrified after he comes back to life. Why? Because Jesus doesn't show up and say, well, now it's all over. What he says is, all right, time for phase two. The cross didn't stick. The powers of evil tried to stop my movement. It didn't work. Now I want you to carry it on. I'm leaving. Good luck. Scary. He says, go to Jerusalem and tell them that I'm still alive. Jerusalem doesn't want to hear that. Jerusalem is the one that just put him on the cross. 36 hours earlier, people were crying. Angry mobs were shouting, crucify him. Jerusalem is a powder keg. And he says, "Go, go to Jerusalem and light a match. Go and say, Jesus is still on the loose. We're part of his movement, and we're going to carry it on. It gets scarier. Their life gets scarier. They are filled with joy but they're terrified at the same time. It's really interesting dynamic. And that's going to be the case for any person who experiences this resurrection, who has this new life in Christ. Life gets safer, your future is secure, but your life gets scarier too because you don't know what he's going to ask you to do. And that's scary. There's a false sense of security that comes in getting to, to call your own shots. You don't know what he's going to ask you to do. And you know for sure that, that at least some of the things he's going to ask you to do are going to be things that you find to be, to be scary. Probably not go confront an angry mob, but you know, what about just, you know, hey, I want you to, to talk to that friend about me. I want you to tell that friend about your faith. Oh, that's scary. I don't want to do that. That's scary. Too bad. That's part of what it means to be a resurrected person. It's part of what it means to accept this new life. It gets scarier. It gets safer, but at the same time, it also gets scarier. So clearer and stranger, lighter and heavier, safer and scarier, all at the same time. That's what this new life is like, or at least that's the the best we can do in, in 20 minutes with a crying baby. That's, that's the, the, the best description of the new life we can do for now. And so then the question is, okay, well, that's what it's like. You know, the question for you is, one, do I have it? You know, is this mine? Has this happened to me? And then two, if, if it hasn't happened to me, if I don't have it, do I want it? Do I want it? Do I want the clearer, stranger, lighter, heavier, safer, scarier life? Do I, do I want it for myself? And I, I guess the third question would be, um, if I don't want it, is there really any alternative life that's going to be, at the end of the day, ultimately satisfying and meaningful? One more story, and we'll close with this. If you looked at the, the Times bestseller list this week, you saw there at number nine, Holding Strong, is this book called Unbroken. It's been on the list for 72 weeks, about five times longer than anything else on there. It came out a couple years ago. I'm sure a lot of you guys have read it. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, who is this Olympic runner in the 1930s and ends up going to the Pacific in World War II, gets shot down, is on a raft in the middle of the ocean for 47 days. Unprecedented. Nobody had ever survived that long. And is finally rescued by an enemy ship. So it goes from the, the water to a POW camp, suffers unspeakable you know, torment, 
and torture, and starvation, and brutality. You know, the, the, and the suspense that the drives the book is, will he make it? Is he going to make it? So I don't want to um, spoil it for those of you that haven't read it, but he, he makes it, and um, yeah. he makes it, and he, and he comes home, and you think, okay, now finally the happy ending. You know, now finally the happy ending. And when he comes home, that's when his life really starts to fall apart from the inside. You know, all this fear and bitterness and anger and confusion just starts eating him up. He starts drinking. He can't stop drinking. He's married to this wonderful woman, and their, their marriage is falling apart. She's going to leave him. But in this last-ditch effort, she says, we just come to this meeting with me. So she takes him. This is the, the late 1940s. She takes him to hear this young preacher named Billy Graham talk about a savior who died on a cross on a Friday, was risen again on a Sunday so that you and I could live new lives. And Louis Zamperini is sitting there, and he just becomes so angry. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So they walk out, they leave, and then the next day, you know, they're so desperate, they don't have any other options. She convinces him to go back to the, the meeting for a second night. But he says, he says, I'll go back with you on one condition. Before he gives that invitation, I'm going to walk out. When he starts to give the invitation, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to stay for that part. So they go back. He does the whole message again. Talks about Jesus dying and being raised again so that you and I can die and be raised again. And he comes to this invitation. Will you confess your sins to him? Will you be found in him? Will you give your life to Christ? And Louis Zamperini stands up to leave, and as he's walking out, but something grabs him, and he can't leave because he remembers how he's on that raft. When he's on that raft for 47 days, he says to God over and over again, God, if you will just save me, I'll give my life to you. And instead, he, he trashed it. So, you know, he, he says, all right. He gives his life to, to Christ that night. We've talked about all these different words, clearer, stranger, lighter, heavier, safer, scarier. Maybe the, the best word that we haven't mentioned yet is just this word, closer. Closer, and, and there's no paradox with this one, closer, and in no sense farther from God, the God who made you, the God who made you to love you, the God who has been waiting for you to come home to him, closer. This resurrection life brings you closer to that God. And, you know, the question is, just is, is it for me? Is it, well, why, why haven't I said yes to this? Why haven't I made this my life, my fundamental reality? There's a risen Savior. There's an empty tomb. There's a rolled-away stone. Jesus is still forgiving sins. He's still giving people a new life. But you have to say yes. You have to accept it. You have to say yes to him. You can't just sit there and do nothing. He's, you know, and Jesus, God falls on his knees and says, will you? Will you let me be your savior? Will you let me be your guide? Will you let me be your strength? You have to say yes to it. You say, well, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I say yes? There are, there are two time-honored, sacred ways of saying yes that we've been given since the beginning. Uh, the first is, is adult baptism, whether you've been baptized as an infant or not. What is baptism? It's being buried 
and being raised again. That's what the symbol means. Again, that's not an interpretation of baptism. Read the Bible. That's what baptism is. You say symbolically in the water, I want to be buried with Christ, and I want to be raised again with him and live a new life. There's that, and then the second symbol, and this isn't either or, it's both and. The second symbol is communion. This bread and this wine symbolizing the body and the blood of Christ where you say, I I ingest this, I eat this, I take this into myself. I want to be united with his death so I can be united with his resurrection. Those are the two ways, the two formal ways of saying yes. But both of those are just outward symbols. They're just outward symbols of something you say in your heart. You can say that without any props, without any assistance. You can just speak it to God in prayer. So as we pray right now, I encourage you to think about that. Let's bow our heads. I'm actually going to go ahead and pray a prayer of saying yes to God, of surrendering to God. If you're here this morning and you you haven't said this before, and these words are appropriate to you, I'd encourage you to just say these words in your heart along with me. Just speak them with me silently in your own heart. God, you know that I've been ignoring you. You know that I have refused to truly worship you and to give you the thanks that you're due. You know that I've been carrying my burdens all by myself. You know that I've been confused and unable to see clearly. You know that I've done wrong. God, today, I want the new life that is possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. I want a life that's clearer and lighter and safer, even if it's stranger and heavier and scarier at the same time. I give you my life, and I trust you to not only resurrect me physically when I die, but to resurrect me spiritually, beginning now. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, who rose from the dead. Amen.